Welcome to Mentors on the Mic podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Simone Miller, a New York City native actress with credits in film, television, off-Broadway, and commercials. Every Monday, I'll bring you an incredible mentor in the entertainment industry, focusing on how they started and how they moved up to where they are today. My goal is to encourage you to follow your dreams and give you a playbook on how to get there. Thanks for listening and let the episode begin. Hello, happy Mentor Monday, everyone. Our mentor this week is Brian Volk Weiss. Brian is a film and TV producer, director, and CEO of the Nacelle Company and Comedy Dynamics. He has been nominated for 19 Grammy Awards for Best Comedy Album and has won four for production on performances by Louis C.K. and Dave Chappelle. He has grown Nacelle's Comedy House, Comedy Dynamics, into the nation's largest independent producer and distributor of stand-up comedy. He also is the creator, producer, and director of the Netflix series The Toys That Made Us and The Movies That Made Us, along with Kevin Hart's Guide to Black History and Discontinued. He produced and directed numerous stand-up specials and comedy albums, as well as Down to Earth with Zac Efron, which is on Netflix, and has served as executive producer on the revival of the 1992 series Mad About You. In this incredible interview, we talk about his beginnings, how he worked for three years doing unpaid work, uh, to, to network and get ahead and get experience. And he had saved $3,000 in college, which he lived on after moving to L.A. We talked about growing within the company, retiring from management to focus on producing and directing, and how it took seven years to sell the show The Toys That Made Us to Netflix. This really is an incredible interview with a genuinely incredible person that I learned a lot from. Without further ado, here's Brian Volkweiss. Welcome to Mentors on the Mic. Thank you for joining us, Brian. Thank How you are you today? Much. I'm good. I, Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, I always like to start off with what was your first role in entertainment? Well, that's that's a funny question. So the first thing I ever worked on was a very, very, very independent movie. And because of the story, I'll tell you, I'm not going to say the name of the movie. And to be completely honest with you, I don't even know if the movie was ever released, but I was a basically a production assistant. This is going to sound funny, but this is the independent movie world. I was like a production assistant slash boom operator slash second director, second (laughs) AD. Uh, So that's and it was this movie that I literally got out here July 1st, 1998. I booked that job. It was for free. I didn't get paid anything. I was the whole movie shot, not the whole movie, but most of the movie filmed in Vegas. So I was actually in Las Vegas six days after I got to LA and I had never been to Vegas in my life, but it was really interesting. It was a very famous movie that had come out about a year earlier maybe three or four years earlier, the cast in the movie was like, if there were 10 actors, nine was white and one was black. This film I was working on uh, was literally a carbon copy of that movie, except it was nine black guys and one white guy. They were literally trying to do the black version. Was it like Ocean's Eleven? 
was not Ocean's Eleven, okay. something like that. Got it. Um, and literally every night, the director and the producers would watch that movie. For reference. And then the next day, we would like redo the scene. Wow. So, and again, keep in mind, this was 1998. But that was my entrance to Hollywood. Love it. Glamorous. Wait, so, and you worked on that for how long? Well, you know, it's funny. I worked on it for about a month, but That's it's good. a movie I've, it's the only time in my life before that or after that, I'm almost 46 years old. That is the only time in my life I've been fired. And I learned, so I, I was supposed to work on it for two or three months, but because I got fired for something that was not, uh, I mean, to say it wasn't my fault would be quite an understatement. Uh, but I learned a lot from why I got fired and it, it's actually helped me my whole career. Wow. Learned from that really kind of effed up situation. I don't know if I can curse or not. You but, can. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. That situation. That That's so interesting to think about because I mean, I, I imagine there's so many people who listen to this who have either been fired or let go. I know I've been cut from, I'm an actor. I've been cut from things before I even got to film them. Sometimes after I got to film them. And we know theoretically it's nothing to do with us, but the idea that it's helped you throughout your career, oh, yeah. having that experience. I would say the, the lessons I learned from that, uh, it's probably the second most important thing I've learned in my whole career. What, what was it? Can you tell us? Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, so on the set, there was this, um, I think she was in accounting, which was, again, very weird that she would be on set, but she was very, very attractive. One day we were filming, and I don't remember all the details anymore why, but everybody was going from the location back to the hotel. And for some reason, she and I, just the two of us, were in a car by ourselves. Mm. The traffic was terrible. So she said, why don't we stop and get lunch? We'll skip the traffic and then we'll go back to the hotel. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, I'm also starving. Yeah. So you get to eat. Great idea. So we got lunch, had a great lunch, went back to the hotel. Everything was fine. We were shooting in Vegas for like another three or four days, wrapped the shoot. Like, I think we wrapped on like a Thursday and the next day of shooting was in LA on a Monday and Sunday night, I got an email basically making up a bunch of bullshit saying that I was no longer needed, which I thought was very weird because I was working for free. And you did like three jobs. Yeah. And I was working like 18 hour days for free. And I didn't have a fight or a problem with anybody. About six months later, one of the people who had worked on that movie, I bumped into her at another, at like a party for another independent film I had worked on. And she like came up to me and was like, hey, I was really fucked up. What happened to you? And I'm like, I don't even know what happened to me. What happened? Here's what happened. One of the producers liked that girl oh god and when he had heard that we had gone and got lunch together it made him jealous and that's what happened what did i learn from this yeah i'll tell you what i learned appearance is sometimes more important or at least equally important to action wow that's not a bad thing to learn one month into your career when you're 22 years old especially in this industry 
Wow. Has it changed how you interact with people on set or, or, you know, those type of moments or just have that? Not on set every aspect of my life. Wow. Basically up until that, my beliefs were that if I did something good or fucked up, I should be, I should be treated accordingly. Yeah. If I go into a store and I steal a candy bar, I should be arrested. Yeah. But if I go into a store and I don't steal a candy bar, I shouldn't be arrested. What I learned from that experience was if I go into a store and I pick up a candy bar and I put it in my pocket, but then I put it back, I could still get arrested. Yeah. So I just learned to be more aware of what it could look like. Yeah. I learned that perception was as important to action. That's a starting off the bat strong. Love it. Thank you for sharing that. And this was all on an unpaid job where you yeah. worked like three yeah. different things on set. Yeah. So, so you get back to, uh, you're now in LA, you no longer have this job. What's the next thing? I did a bunch of free stuff for a while, about yeah. probably about six months of free stuff. And then one of the free things I did, it's unbelievable. My, by the way, my whole career is based on these stories. Like, it's not like these were bullshit things I did that every story I'm telling you led to what I'm doing now. Exactly. That's love it. Yeah. So I was doing a free short movie and it was being directed by a guy who was in the ops department at DreamWorks. Wow. He literally was like the guy when an executive couldn't get his computer to work. He's the guy who went over and fixed the computer. Yeah. On the weekends, he was making a short film. I worked hard for him again for free. And then he hooked me up with a friend of his that worked for uh, Bob Zemeckis's company, Image Movers. Mm -hmm. That led to my one of my first paid jobs in my career. It was working on this very, very strange Showtime series. Again, this is now 1999 that Image Movers was, so basically Showtime had done a deal with all these big directors and each one of them was doing a film, a documentary about like something, I don't remember, like Vice or Freedom, I don't remember, but the one Image Movers was doing was about drug use. So I worked on that, making minimum wage, so I was getting paid. Uh, doing like research and stuff for that documentary. That job that I did for about two months, which was amazing because I got to meet Zemeckis, Steve Starkey, all these people. Um, That job led to me getting a job on Castaway, Castaway. the Tom Hanks movie. And I was a a production assistant in the wardrobe department. Amazing. It's from what I'm hearing, Hey, you did a lot of unpaid work. One. And then two, you know, I mean, I, I, I have my career in New York, but I always think about like the pros and cons of moving to Hollywood. And it sounds like you really took advantage of the pro, which is that you do a lot of stuff. You meet a lot of people and then you get to kind of, you know, it's, it's like, it's not a coincidence. You were, you were working with this one guy who led you to this one company to now, you know, that's kind of how it works. I think not a coincidence at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I was very systematic about it. I literally had a whole wall in my bedroom that was like a grid. And on the far left, it was all the jobs I was aware of. Then it became wow. like jobs I had either been not hired on or had been hired on. 
Then the next one was like the list of people I had met. And then wow, uh, it was, I was very systematic about it. And to your point, I don't think that system would have worked in New York because there just wasn't enough jobs. Yeah. I understand that. It also sounds like, you know, a, with, we talked, we were talking before this about the wall behind you, but it seems like you're a very visual person then. Cause yes. that's something that's followed you. You're like, I like to see whatever it is that I'm working on. Yeah. I didn't know that to be honest. I'm almost 46. I didn't know that till about three years ago, by the way, Really. Um, about myself, but you're absolutely right. It's called visual learner. It is. Well, I mean, yeah, it's an important thing to know because sometimes, you know, kids will go to school and they'll be like, this doesn't work for me. I don't know why I'm not like following any of this. And it's because they're just a different type of learner. Um, excellent. You absorb it. You absorb it this way. It's good to know. Um, great. So you're working on Castaway. You're having a great time, hopefully. How long was that project for you? Well, I was and I wasn't having a great time. Okay. It was a very interesting, again, such a gift to have an experience like that uh, so early in my career. Again, I was 22 years old. Um, I It was really funny. I wanted to work in the production department. I was supposed to work in the production department. And this kind of thing happens to me my whole life. The day before I was supposed to start, they told me I had to be in the wardrobe department. I found out at the very, very, very end of the job, the reason that happened was the people in the wardrobe department uh, were notoriously difficult. And they thought I was the most likely to be able to handle it. And I did. I, I did. Yeah. You did. Wow. Interesting. Huh. Do you ever feel like you make decisions like that that affect? other people's careers now, like the, the PAs now, like if you make a sort of a move like that and then think to yourself, wow, that might be their first job in their story of their career one day. I'm very mindful of it. Very, yeah. very mindful of it. It's, uh, it's very, first of all, it's very important to me, by the way, I just want to say for the record, before I say what I'm about to say, I chose to work for free. That was my choice. I don't begrudge anybody that didn't pay me. They told me ahead of time they wouldn't pay me. And I accepted that. That being said, I don't think it's that cool uh, for me to do it. So first of all, we don't have anybody work for free. But second of all, it's because I am aware of not just how important that shit was in terms of building the foundation of my career. I think God bless you. Uh, almost God bless you. Um, but mm -hmm. I'm also very mindful that those memories stay with you and affect like the thing that I dealt with on Castaway, like th the people I worked for the last day of the shoot told me they, for very specific reasons, like I was the first PA they ever had that hadn't quit and made it through the whole movie. And they wow. were very deliberately trying to fuck with people. Um, and they told me that, I mean, I would have never guessed it in a thousand years, but they wow. told me that. And what I, to your point, I'm, I'm very mindful that some people would have quit and left show business if they had dealt with the same shit that I dealt with. I'm sure they did. I'm sure there are countless stories like that. Yeah. They told me I was the first PA that ever made it through the, an entire shoot. So yeah. imagine all the people before me that didn't. 
So I bet you at least 20% might have quit the business based on what I was dealing with. So I'm to your question, I'm very mindful when dealing with you know people new to the business that shit that I say that I won't remember a minute later right. could stay with them. Because again, I'm nobody in the world, but if somebody's working here, they know I own the company, they know I'm the CEO. So they're going to be paying attention more to what I'm saying than what I'm, I'm not paying attention to it probably. So I just make sure nothing I ever say, they could take in a way that could get them less excited about this career choice. Well, we all appreciate that because <laughs> you're right. It is crazy. I'm sure so many people quit. 20% sounds like a good number, but yeah, it, it, it doesn't make sense that they would deliberately try to make it hard for their PAs. But it's insane. I yeah. mean, it's absolutely, it's uh, uh, like, it's just not also not productive. Like at the scheme of things, you're trying to create something altogether, right? You're putting together a story for whatever project it is. In this case, a huge film, right? Castaway. But at the same time, like why make it harder for people? Is it for amusement, entertainment? Like, what is it? I mean, listen, I think the business has changed a lot. Like what, what I went through, that would never happen to anybody ever. Yeah. But anyway, I'm 99% sure it would never happen again. I am 100% sure if it happened, the people that did it would not tell the person they did it to why they did it. Like right. that was the weirdest thing. Like they gave me 500. It was so crazy because I, I would literally go in every morning talking about movies that I had just watched to like distract them from being mean. Right. So literally at the end of the shoot, they gave me $500 worth of free gift certificates to movies. And while they were giving them to me and I'm like, and I was shocked because I thought I was going to get fired every single day. I thought they hated me. So I was very surprised that they were giving me free movie tickets. And when I asked them why, that's when they told me why they had treated me so badly and why they felt bad about it. That would never happen today. Yeah. But I also think that entire path wouldn't have happened anyway. So I think things are much better now. Yeah, I hope so. I think you're right. I mean, I, I, most of the time you really can't even do unpaid internships anymore. So exactly. it's, it's definitely changed dramatically. Um, interesting. So after Castaway, what was your next thing? So again, I did a bunch of independent stuff, but at while I was doing that, I... And through that, I mean, I had met somebody while doing free student films and shit that had introduced me to a guy that got me an internship. Because one of the things that I realized was I was only working on sets. So the movies were already written, sold, financed. And so I was always last to the party. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get involved earlier. So I met this guy who knew a guy who knew a producer who had a deal at Disney. So I started interning for that guy. There was a communal copy room that all the people on the floor used for their copying. So the, the floor was like 20 producers that had deals with Disney. So all the assistants and interns got to know each other at that communal copy room. One day, one of the guys I knew who was assisting a manager, he told me that he was leaving and had to replace himself. 
So again, everything I've said to you so far has been very systematic. What I'm about to tell you shows you how luck and randomness are, you can Integral, be as systematic yeah. as you want. You need luck and you can't avoid randomness. I was fucking broke. I mean, fucking broke. I was going to ask how you were able to do all these unpaid things and I, like I sustain yourself. Up. I saved in the course of four years in college, I saved $3,000 cash in the bank. I lived off of that three grand uh, for about 15 months. Wow. When I was in the copy room talking to the guy who was leaving his job, uh, I was like, all my credit cards were maxed out. Mm. I had like less than 200 bucks in the bank. My roommates were talking about asking me to leave. So that guy told me he was making 50 bucks a week cash. So for a guy that, uh, or sorry, a day, not a, a day. Week, a I day. assumed a day. Yeah. A day. A day. Um, so for a guy with like 180 bucks in the bank and his rent was 190 bucks a month, 50, $50 bucks a day. A day was yeah. A so he was working for a manager, a talent manager who only represented comedians. Mm. I didn't know what a manager was. I had almost no interest in comedy, certainly stand-up comedy. Wow. I'd only been in a stand-up club once in my life, and I didn't even really like it. I needed the money. So I, I interviewed with the guy. I got the job. I started making 50 bucks a day uh, cash. And about two weeks in, I was like, this is the most awful job I've ever heard of being a manager. I can't imagine anything worse. So I went to quit. And while I was giving my notice, the guy was like, well, what do you want to do? Right. Because when you're a manager, a lot of it is kind of bullshit assistant work. So I said to him, I want to make movies and TV shows. And he was like, as a manager, you can do that. And I stayed and the entire foundation of my career is based on that decision. So I I do want to ask that because I have seen you know, I have had people on my podcast who are both managers and producers. I've had, I've seen it a lot. Obviously it does happen. How does it work? How do you switch from manager? So for example, you were managing Dane Cook for a while and you were also producing his films. So how does that work hand in hand? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, first of all, I, I mean, I've been retired for over 10 years. I have not managed. I have not yeah. had a client in over 10 years. Um, Listen, it, it, it's funny, but my answer to your question is, how do you do that? Uh, it's funny, but I'm serious. Uh, very carefully. Hmm. Because yeah. it's very hard to produce stuff with your clients. Right, so, that's like, what I imagine, yeah. Well, because you have a client making a lot of money for your commissions, and then you're producing something with them. And like your client may want to do something bad, but it's very hard to say no to somebody that you're getting a lot of commissions for. Right. So I realized very quickly, I wanted to get out of man, not quickly, but I knew I, to, to be a real producer and to really build my company, I realized I would have to get out of management. And it ha- what basically happened was we, cause I told you most of my, when I became a manager, the majority of my clients were stand up comedians. Yeah, like so, Whitney Cummings, Jeff Ross, Dane Cook. Yeah. 
So I was producing between zero and three specials a year for my clients. Right. Then one day I got a call from an agent asking me if I would produce a special for one of his clients that I did not manage. And I'll be honest with you, at first I was kind of offended and I was kind of a jerk on the phone, if I'm being honest. But the next day in the shower, I remembered my job was to make money and it didn't matter how I made money as long as it was legal. So I called the manager back or the agent back. I apologized. And his client was Michael Ian Black. And I'll never forget producing that special. And whenever Michael wanted something I didn't want to do or there was no budget for, I had no fear in my heart because he wasn't a client. And then from that, when word got out that we were now producing specials for non-clients, and by the way, this shows you how bad my management business was at the time, we started getting all these calls. So I literally went from Michael Ian Black to Jim Gaffigan, to Kevin Hart, to Aziz Ansari in like a year. Wow. People respected us as a production company. They didn't respect us that much as a management company, but- they, and that's how everything got started. And I, cause I was going to ask, how did you ascend so quickly? I felt like in within, you know, in terms of like positioning, if you, I mean, I was thinking, I think I have it down that like in three years or something, you were promoted to like senior, senior VP. Is that true? If it something is like that, remember. that was a while ago. But, but um, I, and I will tell you this, all those titles are bullshit. <laughs> there's, there's, there's two titles that matter. There's all the bullshit titles that can be summed up as bullshit titles. And then there's CEO, which happened at the same time I bought the company. Right. So uh, I was the head of production, which is the fucking funniest thing in the world. I don't know a goddamn thing about how to be a head of production. Then I was like the president (laughs) of production, which I knew even less about. I mean, it was all bullshit. Um, But you've got to have these titles so that when people see your email, it's like, He's they take you more seriously. Yeah. But it, but it is interesting to note that like how much it changed, but how much it focused on pr- production after a while, it really did feel like you were yeah. distancing yourself from the management side, but what an interesting sort of ascent in the sense that, you know, you found, you already knew you were interested in production. You wanted to develop, you wanted to produce, and then you kind of in hand, you know, created that for yourself more and more. Huh. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning that I read a book in 2006 that's connected to all of this. Um, And the reason I always tell people the year is uh, 2006 is before, I think it was 06, it might've been 05, but regardless, it was the year, this is the key part, it was the year before YouTube, the iPhone, it was like five years before streaming, all of that. Um, so iTunes, there was no iTunes store, yada, yada, yada. So I know there was an iTunes store, but you could only buy and rent uh, songs or movies or whatever. Right. So the book, which was called The Long Tail, predicted everything that was coming. Wow. It didn't name names because it didn't know the names, but it predicted streaming. Wow. It predicted YouTube. It predicted Sirius, XM, Spotify, wow. it predicted everything. And I bet my entire career that the book was right. And by the grace of God, the book was right. How did you bet on it? 
So we went from making, like I said, between zero and three specials a year that we did not own. We just did it, what's called work for hire, mm-hmm. where once you hand it in, you never make another penny. Mm. We changed our entire business model. So at first we started doing 10 specials a year, then 20 specials a year, then 30 specials a year. And we financed all of them and we only licensed them to buyers. And that allowed us to build a library that we have now. It's over a thousand hours, way over a thousand hours. And that makes money 365. And I wouldn't have done that had I not read that book. And if the book had been wrong. Right. Either one. Wow. How interesting. Amazing. So I'm just taking that in and imagining what that would have been like. Wonderful. So then, okay. Well, so going back to the other thing, you were producing various things, not only comedy specials, were you also directing at this time or did you start directing later? I I only started directing like at this point, I think about three and a half years ago. Oh, Um, maybe four. I always wanted to be a director. Like I imagine what I came out here to do. Ironically, it was watching Zemeckis on Castaway where I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll direct again in the future, but I don't like, because I noticed how intense he was on making the movie. And I suddenly realized I'm too, I got like ADD or something. Like I need to work on a lot of shit all at the same time. And I didn't want to only work on one thing at a time back then. So I didn't direct until, like I said, probably about four years ago, it was a um, Lavelle Crawford special for Showtime. And this is what's so funny about show business. Um, He let me direct. It was the first time I directed since college. And then toys and movies that made us had come out on Netflix that year and was picked up. And these are documentaries. They were picked up for a season three of toys and a season one of movies that made us. And again, don't get me wrong. Yes, I had a good relationship with Netflix, but I literally said to him like, hey, uh, I'm directing now. Can I direct toys and movies that made us? And they were like, sure. And that's how it started. That's how it all started. Yeah. Do you know, um, and I might take this up. Do you know Linda Mendoza by any chance? She's directed a lot sure. of comedy specials. She's so she was on, she was, she's a legend. She was on the podcast as well in my first season. Um, and I was talking to her about the difference between directing something more narrative or like a television episode of something an episodic versus uh, a stand-up special. And it's very specific. And she talks a lot, like she doesn't love, um, you know, panning to the audience. She, she's not a fan of that personally in her directing. Is there anything about directing a stand-up special that you picked up on that's like a stylistic choice for you or that you love to do? Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to sound like it's not stylistic, but I can assure you it is. With stand-up specials, uh, I quote the, uh, the the Hippocratic Oath, which I think is uh, uh, do no harm. Right. And what I'm about to say, I mean, this will really like some people will not like this, but it's what I believe in my heart. The director of a stand-up special, as I see it, my job is to implement the will of the comedian. I The quote that I heard best that sums up my opinion on this 
before the first ever Spider-Man movie came out, they were interviewing Sam Raimi and Sam Raimi said this thing I thought was brilliant. He said, I'm directing Spider-Man. I'm not directing Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. And that's what I try to do with stand-up. Like my job is twofold. One, the comedian needs to be relaxed and at peace the day of the shoot. There can be no stress. There can be no chaos, nothing. It has to be a peaceful, like warm environment. Number two, I need to make sure I get all the shots. So I have a lot of cameras, at least seven, usually nine. Wow. And then I do no harm. It's not about Brian Volkweiss wants this. Oh, Brian Volkweiss thinks that. That's not what the public wants. What the public wants, in my opinion, and this is a bit like a lot of comedians could be hearing this and really hate what I'm saying. And I respect their opinion. I'm just not the director for them. And I respect that. That's okay. But I believe, based on my opinion and also shitloads of data from Netflix, HBO, Amazon, you name it, the public, they get home from a hard day of work. They could watch a trillion things. If they choose stand-up comedy, from the minute they hit play, they want to start laughing as quickly as possible. They don't want me directing some bullshit. Oh, the comedians walking through smoke, through a dark alley behind the theater. Who gives a fuck? They want to laugh. So I feel like my job is make the comedian comfortable and record a show, edit a show that gets to the laughs as quick as possible. Yeah. Well, the editing is key, I imagine, because with any comedy, but especially I imagine comedy specials, it's all, and I've noticed, and I wanted to ask this, in a lot of, you know, the way the way the movies that made us and the toys that made us are edited almost feels like like a comedy special in a way. The way, the, the pace of it is is really specific and like there's like animation, animated stuff sometimes and like, you know, jokes thrown in. Is that all purposeful? Is that just also part of your style? Yeah, it's two different answers to two different questions. So on the stand-up comedy side, I can cheat because I got the greatest editor in the history of stand-up comedies, Brenda Carlson. Brenda Carlson, like, needs to be in the Guinness Book of World Records. I mean, she's edited over 200 stand-up specials. She has edited 99% of the stand-up specials I've been involved with. So I don't do shit. (laughs) I'm on set. I do my thing. She gets the footage. And then she works with the artist. If the artist wants my notes, which happens about 1% of the time, I'll give you notes. But again, it's not about me. It's about the comedian and the relationship between the comedian and the audience. On the documentaries, that's very different. On the the documentaries, I have a take and I implement that take. I have an opinion that I, it's what I like to call the spinal column of the episode and the spinal column of the season. So it's two different episodes, two different spinal columns, a small one per episode, a big one over the course of the whole thing. And then I have like a lot of rules because I'm a huge documentary guy. Like even- I was going to ask, yeah. So my whole life before Toys That Made Us, I was watching documentaries and I just came up with like a list of rules and we follow those rules. And to your question, one of those rules is 
like the amount of documentaries that I've seen about fun, joyful topics that treat them like the rise and fall of the Third Reich. And I'm like, you're making a documentary about pinball games. Why are you using music? Why is this serious? Why is this serious? So that was something very deliberate we did from the very beginning with Toys That Made Us. But to be honest with you, a lot of our style is also about communicating as much information as possible within about a 50 minute window. Right. Well, so can you, I have another question about that, but before I ask that, what are some of your other rules for creating these? You got to have a take, like there's no right or wrong, but you have to have an opinion. So if we're covering a topic, I'm not trying to make a documentary where it's like, she said this and he said that, Mm -hmm. like, and we don't know, like if we're going to put it in the show, we will say what she said, we will say what he said, but we will say, based on our research, we're pretty sure she's right about this and he's right about that. I think that's really important too. I I mean, yeah, Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I feel like documentaries should have a very strong opinion and the ones that don't, you, you leave going, you know, I don't know what I feel because, you know, I'm, I'm getting so many different perspectives. Exactly. The other rule, no punching down. Like we do not punch down. So, and by the way, we don't even do, we don't do anything dark. There's a doc that just came out about the uh, Boeing 737 airplane crashes. Yeah. I'm obsessed with airplanes my whole life. I'm obsessed with Boeing. I've taken the Boeing factory tour probably a dozen times. We would never do that documentary in a billion years. I do not want to do a documentary about 300 people dying because the company was obsessed with profit. I will watch it. I will not make that documentary. I don't want to be a part of it. It'll Why is that? It'll just okay. be depressing to me. And to be honest with you, a lot of people can make that doc. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck am I to make a doc about Boeing airplane crashes? So it's, that's not for me. But within our documentaries, a lot of times you find people that are not sympathetic or you find people that do fucked up shit. We will cover it but we will never just start pounding down yeah. on people. Like yeah. we present the facts. I get that. And then we move on. Because there is a difference between watching a documentary on the Boeing crash, then, you know, then, then immersing yourself in it for months on end. Or years. Or years. Yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And so for those particular docuseries uh, for toys and for movies, were you pitched this or did you kind of come up with it with other people? How did that work? Toys that made us took me seven years to sell. Uh, And then movies that made us was so funny. Um, After toys that movies, after toys that made us came out, Netflix asked me to come in and pitch spinoffs because they were very happy with how toys that made us did. Right. So we spent so once you're in, you're in kind yes, of thing, especially by the way, at Netflix, That's what right. I always say about Netflix is it's very hard to sell them a show, but once you've sold them a show, you it's really, there's a family. They would say a team. They would be like, we're not a family. We're not a family. We're a team. And that's true. That is true. But I I'll still say family. Um, but um, 
I read that you said that they, they trust you a lot. And, and it kind of makes sense with the, you know, you saying that you directed a couple episodes, you just told them, listen, I want to direct. And they were like, yeah, yeah. I feel like you said once it's they better. work with you, they trust you. It's better than that. I hadn't directed a couple of episodes. I had directed one Lavelle Crawford stand-up <laughs> special. <laughs> the fact that they trusted me was insane, <laughs> but they did. And luckily it came out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we spent well over a hundred hours putting together a tape, a five minute sales tape and like a 50 page deck for the games that made us. And it was wow. going to be all about video games. I don't remember anymore why, but about two days before the meeting, I had the idea, you know, maybe we shouldn't only pitch one spinoff oh. because I looked at the email and it said plural. It said ideas Smart. for a spinoff. So I think part of it was like, I didn't want to not follow the assignment. Yeah, I get that. So I literally emailed our art department, the famous picture of um, Bruce Willis wearing the tank top yeah. in front of Nakatomi Plaza from the poster of Die Hard. And I asked him to replace uh, Bruce Willis's face with Frank Sinatra's face, face, because a lot of people don't know this, Die Hard is actually a sequel to a Frank Sinatra movie that it came out in the early 70s. Oh, I missed that story. So they legally had to offer it to Sinatra. And Sinatra was going to do it. And then at the last minute, it was like, you know what? I think I'm a little old to be jumping out of windows. Wow. So, they, the art department made that poster in like less than two hours. We went to Kinko's, printed it. I went to the Netflix meeting. I think I spent 57 minutes talking about games that made us. I even forgot about the movie, about, about the poster. The head of Netflix, unscripted, Brandon Reed, saw the tube and was like, what's that? And I'm like, oh, shit, sorry. I also made this for you. So I take out the Bruce Willis poster, put it on the table, and the rest is history. That's what got greenlit. Were you ever disappointed that you didn't get to do the other one? You kind of were like, this sounds great too. For this minute, yes. Oh, yeah. well, you I'll, get still- it. I'll get it done. I'll get it you done. Will. You have all that information. It's going to happen. And it makes a lot of sense with what you're doing now to do a thing about, to do a spinoff about games. So I'm not too worried. Um, for the movies that made us though, I read that you made a list of like a hundred films that you were excited about. Then you looked at how big the audiences were and then the demographics, and then you do research for, to like find a story. And I guess what you were saying before, find an opinion. So what do you look for in terms of a story? And then also like, how has that changed? Maybe now that your audience is a bit more established for, for the show, do you cater to that already original audience or you just think about the audience that you'd like to you'd like to find for a particular movie, if that makes sense? So, I mean, if you or someone else says, Brian, you have a style. OK, you're I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that's true. I don't do that on purpose. Like we just do what we do and that's what comes out. So I'm not like, ooh. That's not Nacelle. This is the Brian spin on it. Yeah, like we don't do that at all. We just tell the story. Um, to your other question, um, I don't, 
like, I'll give you a great example. We're doing a show right now that hasn't been announced. So I can't say what it is, but we're doing a show now about a massive IP, one of the biggest in history. Unlike Star Wars, unlike Star Trek, unlike RoboCop or Batman, I don't know a goddamn thing about this IP. I've only seen like two or three hours of it. So I bought a bunch of books and I read the books. And as I'm reading the books, I make notes. And as I'm making the notes, I start to find out what I think is interesting. Mm. Once that's done, that goes to all the story editors and the researchers. And then they start to look for those stories that I can back into my quote unquote vision for what I think the show should be about. And the other thing that happens simultaneously, once we get a green light, we immediately start researching. I will then get one outline per episode. So I'll read the outline, which is anywhere from like five to 10 pages long. And I'll give notes on the outline. And that further narrows what the spinal column of that episode and that season is going to look like. What a process. It's definitely a process. And we, we started all of this with toys that made us, I mean, right. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. And then after we had done it, there were things we did good. There were things we did bad. We stopped doing the things we did bad and we just kept doing the things that worked and we just tweak it a little bit, but it's, it's pretty defined now the whole system. Do you do that as you go? Or do you have like a specific meeting maybe after a season and, and just list all the things that did well or didn't do well? Or is it like, as you go, you go that one, we're going to have to keep, you know, not doing or something like that. We don't do it at the end of the season. We do it at the beginning of the next season. Got it. Yeah. So like, after time, and yeah. we evolve with movies and toys that made us like it's always every episode is one toy right. or one movie. If you watch what we're doing now, like we just had the show come out called The Center Seat on History Channel, all about Star Trek. We've started doing series wide arcs. So every episode of that show has three series arcs that go from the very beginning of episode one to the very end of the last episode. We had never done that before. And now we're doing all these shows this year. and We're doing that for all of them. That's so great. Do you have, um, cause podcast series, a lot of the narrative ones go like that too. And I know you guys have a podcast studio in your office. Do you guys, are you guys playing around with that type of feel too? this idea of a series where like the whole season, you have one story that you're going from yes. beginning to end. Yes. We're, we're, we're doing that. We're doing one-offs. We're everything under the sun. A lot we're of content. Podcasts, so we're still, yeah. We're still finding our way. I feel like a lot of production companies are. They're building these new podcasting yeah. platforms where they're like, we're going to find our own way of doing this. But I, I love that you're doing that. I was going to ask, I want to ask a question about content. So you obviously, you guys put out so much content in a given year. So my first question is, I know a lot of it's in-house, but I wanted to ask, so for instance, I think I saw on IMDb and for whatever this means that you have about like 14 comedy specials that are currently in post-production. So my first question is how long is usually like, you know, I'm sure you guys have such a system right now. Um, in putting that stuff out, how long usually between recording a stand-up special, or sometimes I'm sure they re- you record a couple times, right, and then editing it and having it 
out in the world? How long does that usually take? It, it's up to the artist. Okay. We've turned them around in two days. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, we had to. We had wow. to make a date. And I mean, I think our record is seven months. It's incredible. Yeah. And do you put that together and then find like a, like a streaming platform to distribute it? Or do you do it the other way around have like a promise that this is going to go to Netflix and we're filming it. And then at, at, at this point in our evolution, to use a fancy word, um, it's probably 70%. We do them with no buyer ahead of time. Mm-hmm. 30%. We know ahead of time who the buyer is. And I bet the 30% is, is are people like Dave Chappelle and like people who you like already have a deal with Netflix or have the clout to be able to have something just go right to it. So exactly. I, it makes a lot of sense. That's right. Um, I'm excited. I saw that you guys were doing uh, the John Dornbo, Adara Dornbos special. I'm really excited yes. for that because I loved his book. He's, He's the best. Just sounds like a great guy. Oh. Um, so I'm excited for Can you tell us a little bit about that? Is there any way, like, is it just even generally speaking? I'm just curious how that'll look. You know, again, I got to be so respectful of That's the fair. artist. Uh, it's, it's really for him to answer at this Completely point. Once it's understand. out and all that. Yeah, I'll comment on it, but never a lot of what I, even though being a manager is a really difficult job, even though I, the day I retired is one of the greatest days of my life. um, (laughs) I learned so much from it that has affected the DNA of our company and how we relate to talent. Yeah. One of the things I learned about talent, you never want to be ahead of them. Hmm. Fair. You let it speak for themselves. So you let their work and then, you know, their story there. And that, that's kind of what you were saying before about putting them and their story out in the front. It's not your show. It's their show. Yeah. I, my job is to stay in the shadows and make sure they have a special that they're proud of and they can talk about the way they want. Yeah. Again, a year or two later, I'll tell you whatever the fuck. Right. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to do a like, follow up. Yeah. That <laughs> one is not out yet. Right. Fair enough. You have a lot of things that it's, it's amazing how much content you guys put out. And then do you have an interest to go back to narrative or do you at any point oh, yeah. or yeah, we're, 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 we're heading there. Good. That's exciting. And are you going to direct those as well? Most likely. Yes. Excellent. Cool. Um, all right. So to close this out, I want to also mention you recently launched a toy division. We can talk about, this is not going to come out till March, but, um, I know you guys just announced it because I saw your Instagram post. So you recently launched a toy division. Congratulations. Um, it's all aimed at preserving nostalgic franchises and introducing them to a new generation. Can you tell us a little bit about this? What do you want people to know about this? I, you know, it's a really crazy business. Uh, this might be the first time in my entire career where if I knew ahead of time what we were getting into, I may not have done it. Mm. I mean, it's, I mean, we're dealing with factories in China and Cambodia. We're dealing with COVID, rights, like COVID, getting the rights to IPs. There's a lot of complicated stuff going on. You got to make models. You, you got to, the cost to ship the molds. That's six figures, literally just the cost to move these iron molds from China to Mexico. That's a hundred grand. Wow. So, so it's complicated, but it's, we're just, we're trying to make high quality product at a good price that gives people joy. 
Why? Because that's the toys that I buy. I'm a huge toy collector. It gives me, I bought two GI Joe Super 7 toys yesterday at Target. Like it just gave me so much joy seeing them on the shelves at Target, let alone putting them on my shelf at home. So that's what we're trying to do. And are you slash, if you are, how are you integrating that with Toys That Made Us? It's integrated in that the relationships we've built to make that show Mm -hmm. are playing a pretty big part in this process. Other than that, they're not really integrated. Fair. Interesting. Can you tell us a little bit, going back to the narrative story, I just thought of this. Is there a book or some sort of adaptation of a story that you really want to tell one day? Yeah, I do. This is going to sound crazy, but- Chester, I want to do a, at least a doc, if not a scripted film. I don't know if this is at the top of the list, but it's in the top three. Mm-hmm. But maybe it is the top of the list because when you ask me, that's what you thought of. Popped in my head on Chester A. Arthur. Why? Do you know who that is? I it's super familiar. Uh, it'll come to me, but I know the name. As soon as you said Chester, I thought Arthur, so I have to know it. Yeah, nobody knows who this guy is. Who is he? Funny thing. For 10, 15 years, if, if you had asked me this question two years ago, I would have said, I want to make a show about Ulysses S. Grant. That I know. That <laughs> oh, is he the vice president for no, him? Okay. No, but what happened was okay. I sold that show. We made that show. Right. And this is what came up next. So yeah, Chester A. Arthur was the president of the United States. I knew, I, you know, I was going to guess president, I swear. And then I thought, you know what? If I get that wrong, I would be so embarrassed. So, okay. President of the United States, go it's for it. the craziest story you've ever heard. Really? This is the most corrupt motherfucker you've ever read about. I mean, he makes Trump look, and I, I hope I'm not offending your politics. I don't mean to, uh, but he makes Trump look like uh, fucking Mother Teresa. This guy was so fucking corrupt. Did he get the presidency because of something that happened to a president? It's insane. He's in charge of the New York City port. Mm -hmm. He is charging an illegal tax on everything that comes in and everything. So if, if I'm a wine dealer from Italy, he taxes me to give you the wine. He then gonna tax you to take the wine. So, and the, the port of oh New York God. at the time, which was around, I think, the 1880s, it was the biggest port in the world. So, every single thing that came into the United States on, he was getting about a 10% bribe to get it into the country. Oh my God. One day, he's in the office and he opens a piece of mail and he finds out that for the most bizarre reasons, I'm not going to bore you with, uh, he has been made the vice presidential candidate to a guy who has no chance whatsoever of becoming president. And he gets a little freaked out, but everybody's like, dude, that guy's not going to win. Don't worry about it. And he's like, well, that's kind of fucked up, but okay. All right. I guess. All right. I'm not doing anything. Am I? And they're like, no, no, no. Just stay in the port of New York. Uh, that guy ends up winning Garfield. Right. That was yes. And then so Garfield wins. Yeah. And now Chester A. Arthur's freaking the fuck out. He literally tried to commit suicide. 
Like he did not want to be vice president. He knew how corrupt he was. So he meets with Chester A. Arthur. He'd never met him before. And now they're both the president and the vice president elect. And he says to Garfield, he's like, I don't want to be vice president. Get me the fuck out of this. And Garfield's like, for a lot of reasons, I can't do that, but I'll make a deal. Come to the inauguration, smile, and then you can go back to New York and you can keep running the port of oh our port of He's like, all right, I'll do that deal. So he stands there for the inauguration. He smiles. He goes back to New York. Six weeks later, Garfield gets killed. And I'm sorry, I messed no. up. Yeah. That's when he tries to kill himself. Oh, wow. <laughs> he literally, in the coldest night of the year, takes a bath and goes out for a five-hour horse ride soaking wet when it's oh like three God. degrees outside. But he doesn't die. He has no choice, but he has to become president. He meets with the cabinet and he's like, you guys know I'm a piece of shit. I know I'm a piece of shit. You guys run the fucking country. I'll stand there and smile at the inauguration, but then I'm going back to New York to run the port. And they're like, okay, cool. And that's what happens. He gets elected or not elected. He gets sworn in. He smiles. He says goodbye to the cabinet. He goes back to New York. And this is the reason I want to make the movie. He's in, and sometimes I apologize ahead of time. Sometimes I get a little emotional telling this story. Um, see, it's already starting. You're making me cry. Um, he's back in New York for about a month doing his fucked up shit. He, again, I just want to make sure you understand this. He is a terrible president. person. He is the president of the United States who is living in New York, running the port of New York. And he has deferred the running of the government to his cabinet. One day, he gets a letter. He opens the letter. It's from a very, like I said, sometimes I get emotional, sorry. Yeah. No, you're fine. From a very sickly young girl, 14-year-old girl. She's so sick, she can't leave her parents' house. And because she can't leave her parents' house and there's no television, no Netflix, what does she do all day? Read. So every day she reads like five newspapers. She reads books. Wow. She's very knowledgeable. She sends a letter to Chester A. Arthur and she says, you are one of the most corrupt, fucked up human beings who has ever lived. But you are one of the most lucky, fucked up humans who's ever lived because you have had a lifetime of being a horrible person that bleeds and steals money from everybody else. But you're lucky. You are now the president of the United States. It's the most powerful job in the United States. And it's one of the most powerful jobs in the world. You have four years to make right all the stuff you've done wrong. Oh my God. For the last, I think he was around 45 when he got elected. You now have time, you have four years to do enough good stuff so that when you end up in talking to God, you go to heaven and not to hell. And he did it. He literally went back to Washington, told the cabinet, I changed my mind. I'm going to be the president. Oh my God. 
<laughs> and again, the story has already gone on way too long, but he, he did some of the most important stuff any president has ever done with the greatest irony of all wow. to make our government more merit-based. And he literally passed all these laws that would prevent somebody like him mm. from ever coming into power ever again. Wow. Yeah. That's an incredible story. Do you That's see it? Do you see it as a doc or narrative or both? Like when you, when you visualize it, when you told me that story, do you see it as a narrative or do you see it as a doc? If I had to guess what will happen, we'll do it as a doc. And then make it. And the more and more and more we get in, because, and I do have to run in a second. Yeah, 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 I completely understand. Uh, It's my fault. I just took a two hour story. What we did with stand-up specials, where we went from producing them for other people Mm -hmm. to producing them for ourselves, where we own them. Yeah. We're now doing that for documentaries. Right. I'm hopeful two to four years from now, we'll be doing that with scripted. Yeah. So if I had to guess, we'll do a documentary about Chester A. Arthur, and then we'll do a film based on that documentary. Mm. I hope you find someone to write that now. That sounds amazing. I'm like, I want to see it's, it. It's funny. It's not that story, but we just hired our first writer to write a film that I hope that we'll be shooting towards the end of 2023. That's exciting. Congrats so on that. Happens, but that we are doing that. All right. Let me ask you one last question. Just, I know you have to go. What is your definition of success? And it could be a short answer if, if, if needed. It, it's such a silly, weird kind of artsy fartsy answer, but it's really my, what I think is the truth for me, at least it's based on this Leonard Cohen line from a song, uh, bird on a wire. Mm. Um, if I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, this would be tattooed somewhere. I tried in my way to be free. And it's all about freedom. Mm-hmm. I want to have freedom. I don't want to have to have an idea and be restricted, have to sell stuff and need money from other people. I want to be excited about something on a Monday and in pre-production on Friday. That to me is freedom. And that to me is, yeah, to answer your question, that's what I define as success. Well, Brian, this has been such a fantastic interview. I've loved, loved learning from you. Really just your journey is amazing. I love that story at the end to tie it all together. I mean, really, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Obviously did some research. I appreciate that. And uh, I thank you for caring about what we're doing. I uh, have not gotten used to that. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you haven't yet, do me a favor, drop a five-star review, follow on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, and find me on Instagram. I'm at at Michelle Simone Miller and at Mentors on the Mic. Share this in your stories. Let me know what you think. Share it with a friend, and I'll see you next time.